Good morning. If you brought a copy of the Bible, please find Exodus chapter 2. This is the second in a series of sermons from the book of Exodus. Last week, we read chapter 1, and we saw that the book of Exodus is a story. It's the story of God delivering Israel from destruction. It's about God saving his people from slavery. But there's more. We also saw that it's not only that God saves his people from bondage to other gods. He saves them not just from something, but to something. God saves Israel from destruction to himself so that they would know him and they would love him and they would follow him. But it's not just that God saves us from destruction to himself. The book of Exodus is also about a third thing. God saves us from destruction to himself for the life of the world. And so in Exodus, we see that God is not just delivering Israel for their own sake, but he's delivering them for the sake of others. Now, last week, when we got to the end of chapter one, things looked really grim. Wicked old Pharaoh had enslaved the Israelites to keep them from multiplying any further, he had come up with this terrible plan to kill all of the baby boys. So Exodus chapter 1 ends kind of on a cliffhanger. Verse 22, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So we get to the end of this chapter, chapter 1, and there's this clear, brutal picture of Israel in the violent, deadly grip of a God that is intent on their suffering and their death. Israel needs to be saved. But how? Then we get to chapter 2. And chapter 2 begins with a remarkable birth story, which if you've read the Bible, is one of the things that happens in the Bible. Remember Pharaoh, this evil mandate to kill Hebrew baby boys. And the way he wants them to be killed is in a particular way. Um, it's exposure on the Nile. So you take your kid to the Nile and you, you leave the baby there. You throw the baby into the Nile. Now, wouldn't you imagine that if you were an immigrant population within one of the most powerful civilizations on the earth, and everybody in that civilization has been ramped up to see you as a threat. And that if you have a child, if it's a boy, to yank the child from your love and your hands and to throw the child into the Nile. Now, wouldn't you imagine that this would have a chilling effect on marriage and baby and, and childbirth? So when we see the first thing that a man from the house of Levi takes as his wife, a Levite woman, it's ambiguous. Is this a deliberate act of like political resistance? Even though they're 
um, abusing us, we're going to get married anyway. You know, we don't know. And I kind of wonder reading it where marriage is like on the sly, you know, like in dusk in the forest or in caves. How did they pull this kind of thing off? And then the next thing we're told is that the woman conceives and gives birth to a son. Well, this is bad news. What, what are they going to do? And can you imagine the entire pregnancy, the anxiety they would have felt? Like, what if I do have a child? What if the child is a boy? And then the next thing we know, this mother can't hide the boy any longer. So what does it say in verse 3? When she couldn't hide him any longer, she took for him a basket. And you might underline that word in your Bible. I'm going to come back to that. A basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. I don't know why most English versions of the Bible translate this as basket because it's this word, teva, that's only used one other time in the Old Testament, only once. And the only other time it's used is with Noah. And it's always translated in Genesis 6 through 9 as ark. And the ark is covered in bitumen. So here is the same word covered in the same kind of substance. So imagine what's going on here. This is really a beautiful scene. Here is a mother who loved her son so much that she made for him a little ark, a tiny replica of the ark that saved Noah and his family. Now, I, we don't know why she did this, but you can imagine, right? Maybe that's her prayer. Maybe she's like, God, you've, you have saved a family from drowning before by an ark that was covered in bitumen. That's all the hope I've got now. All I can do now is expose my baby to the Nile, but in this thing that's a prayer of begging you, please deliver my baby. Sure enough, against all odds, this little ark, instead of sinking or floating out to sea, or floating into the mouth of a crocodile. It floats straight into the arms of, oh no, Pharaoh's daughter. Like this could be just as bad as the crocodile, right? We don't, we don't know. And can you imagine watching and waiting and seeing that of all people this floats to, it's the child of the devil himself, right? The one who's trying to genocidally wipe out my people. Verse 5, now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. Now, just imagine reading this naively for the first time. You don't know the story at all. All you know is what's going on. I mean, right now, you're like, heart is beating, right? You wish the baby wouldn't be crying. <laughs> like, don't make a scene. Don't you know that this is a crocodile that has you in its grasp? She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Holy cow, right? Instead of destroying the baby, the woman, the, this princess sees the baby, hears him crying, rescues him, and makes him her own. So in this little ark, this little baby retraced Noah's journey and found salvation from the water through the water. 
Now, did you notice that up to this point, nobody has a name, right? There's a nameless son of Levi who marries a nameless daughter of Levi, and they have a nameless child and a nameless princess with nameless servants. Everything's nameless until you get to the end of the birth narrative. And then in the climactic moment, suddenly we're told when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of water. Now, most likely, if you're following along in your Bible, there's a footnote there. And the footnote will tell you something like the name Moses sounds like the Hebrew word for draw out. So the name Moses is actually an Egyptian word, right? So this is an Egyptian princess. She most likely speaks ancient Egyptian. And she gives her son a very curious name. She gives him this generic word. In Egyptian, it means literally son. She just named the child son. That's not a very strong name. Like, there's not a lot of, like, destiny in that, right? But it's a double entendre. Somehow along the way, she's picked up enough Hebrew to know that that word sounds like the Hebrew word for draw out. So Moses grows up. I don't know, do all the other people in the palace know that this Hebrew word kind of goes in two ways? This Egyptian word goes in two ways? For whatever reason, she gives her adopted son a name that works in both Egyptian culture and language and Hebrew culture and language. And that's where the story of Moses' birth ends. It ends with a tricky name that carries two cultures' identities in it. And so when you're reading this, what, what you're supposed to do at this moment is say, well, what's going to become of this child? Look, those of you who grew up in church and you've seen this story on flannel boards and you already know the end, just try, just try to hear this for the first time. Like at this moment, what's going to become of this child? And which God saved the child? Was it the God of the Nile, which was a God to Egyptians? Did, remember the books of a Battle of the Gods. Who saved the child? What's the child going to do? Who, whose God is going to win in this child's life? Whose God is winning now? And which identity is this child going to pick up? He's, he's clearly been saved by Yahweh because we've got this tricky little wordplay, basket is ark, and he's written. So that's God's hand behind the scenes. But does he know that? He's, he's been saved by Yahweh, he's been marked by Yahweh, but he's also been marked by Egypt, right? He's been adopted right into the center of Egyptian culture and influence and power. He's raised in Pharaoh's house. So he's left behind slavery and poverty and certain death. But what's he going to become? Will he become an Egyptian and no longer a Hebrew? Will he embrace the Egyptian gods and leave behind the Israelite god? What will he do with all the wealth and privilege and education that he so lavishly receives as a prince of Egypt? Will he embrace his identity as a son of Egypt, a son of Pharaoh? Or will he embrace his identity as one who draws out and will draw out from water? Remember the books of Battle of the Gods. So on the one hand, we have Egypt, one of the most powerful civilizations in the ancient world. And Egypt is filled with gods, and the Nile is a god, and Pharaoh is a god. And then on the other hand, we have Israel, and Israel's god is Yahweh. Which god will Moses bow down to? Those of you who are being raised and educated 
in a secular society with different gods than we're worshiping here. You know how hard this issue is, how strong this situation is. Well, sure enough, the next thing we're told about Moses is that something like 40 years later, here's Moses, he's an adult, he's been living the life of privilege, the life of a prince of Egypt, and yet the God of Israel has been at work in his heart because somehow, notice verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, his people. But it's ambiguous at this point if you're reading it for the first time, right? Which people are his people? He went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. So now we know he's chosen. He looked on the burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Something had happened in Moses and somewhere along the way, he had staked his identity with Yahweh with Israel. And when he saw the Egyptian beating, the Hebrew word there is makah. It means to deal a violent blow that ends in death. Now that's interesting. He didn't just see an Egyptian kind of slapping around in Hebrew. She, he watched a brutal beating to death. So he sees this, right? And the word for he went out to look, to see, it's this idea of a deep inspection. He goes out. He's been living in the castle, right, in the palace. And he wants to see what his people are going through. And what he sees is a man getting beat to death. And he looks this way and that and seeing no one. That's ambiguous. Does it mean he's hiding or does it mean, will somebody stop this? I was on a train one time where somebody's life was being threatened. And I looked around to see if anybody was going to come. He looks around. We don't know, is he looking around in a cowardly way or is he looking around for justice? And there's nobody there. And so he struck down, same verb in Hebrew. He did to the Egyptian, the same verb, a deathly blow that the Egyptian was doing to the Hebrew. So there's this ambiguity. Is he doing right or is he doing wrong? Is this a proper response or is this an adequate response and the only way to stop the killing was by killing? Is he overreacting or is he just giving a proportionate act? For Moses, this was a defining moment. He chooses Israel, not Egypt. He's, he, he is going to become a deliverer. And this is his first trial run at it. He's Moses, not son, but deliverer. And he's passionate about justice. And he refuses to be indifferent to evil. And he's concerned for the life of the weaker members of society. And he will not tolerate abuse of the weak by the strong. And he's been saved from death for the purpose of saving others from death. And he was delivered in order to be a deliverer. But the next day, he goes out again in his newfound vocation, delivery. And behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, same verb, violently striking each other with blows that lead to death. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you do that? Strike 
your companion in that way. And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. So it's interesting. One day, Moses puts it all on the line, stakes his claim, I'm in with Yahweh tries to live out what he thinks he was made to do, next day, his world falls apart. Everything falls apart. What a gut, a gut punch. It, it's like the guy who surprises his girlfriend with a marriage proposal at halftime in the middle of the field with everybody in the stands watching, and she says no and walks off the field, right? He was prepared for one, alter, one outcome to this scenario, and rejection was nowhere on his radar until it was. And we've all been there, maybe not in that dramatic of a way. With the best of intentions, you do what you think you're made to do. You do what you think you're called to do. You do what you think is right. And then suddenly it comes back on you in some terrible way. And you are ashamed and you're isolated. And maybe, maybe you're unemployed or underemployed because according to your convictions in the workplace... You made a choice. Maybe you're unmarried because you refuse to compromise on biblical marriage and sexuality. Maybe you're unpopular because you don't run with the cool kids. Whatever the case, have you ever done your best and it landed in a place that just wasn't fair? And instead of being rewarded for the right thing, you were rejected and cast out. That's Moses, but it's also Jesus, isn't it? Jesus suffered that kind of rejection repeatedly throughout his ministry. For example, you would think that Jesus would have received a warm welcome when he went home to preach in his hometown in Nazareth, where he grew up, but he didn't. Luke chapter 4, verse 22 describes how his hometown rejected and almost stoned him to death. That's what Moses is going through. He was in a heap of trouble. He had Remember, he had chosen to turn his back on the world of power and privilege as a prince of Egypt to follow his destiny as a Levite, an Israelite, a man named Deliverer. And then his own people rejected him. And instead of welcoming him, they shunned him. And then Pharaoh heard about it. And in an instant, Moses lost his only citizenship that he held. And so he fled a fugitive. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 24 says, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God and from the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. By faith, he left Egypt. And so now, instead of either being an Egyptian son or a Hebrew deliverer, he was neither. He was estranged from both families, both peoples, both religions. Whatever sense of discernment about his vocation he may have had, imagine him sneaking, hiding, running, trying to get out of Egypt. Imagine him, see him in your mind's eye, sneaking across borders with nothing but the clothes on his back 
and probably a lot of anger and a resentment and a lifetime of questions. And then we get to verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Raul, he said, how's it that you come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Now, do you see what's happening here? One time, Spencer, when she was young, one of my children, um, something amazing had happened that was clearly God. And Spencer said to my mother, isn't God kind? That's exactly what's going on here. God is just so kind. Not only is Moses getting to live up to his Hebrew name, he draws out. He drew out water for them, Hebrew name. He draws out. This former prince of Egypt saved these seven women in distress, and he drew out water. He delivered people from injustice. That was his passion. That was the thing he got slammed for. But this time he doesn't get slammed for it. This time he gets celebrated for it. This is an enormous kindness of God, not only to the women, but to Moses. Remember, he is in a faraway place among strangers, and he arrives there full of doubts. He's just tried to do what he thought he was created to do, and he really messed it up. Remember, it's ambiguous. His killing of the Egyptian, was it good or bad? That ambiguity is what he felt for 40 years. Like, did I do the right thing? In the same way, when you read the passage and you're like, eh, I don't know if he should have done that. That's what he's been going through. He's been questioning and doubting and thinking, maybe I'm confused. Maybe all that stuff was just kind of stuff I made up in my mind. He had just left everything to be who he thought he was supposed to be, and he he had messed it up. He had murdered someone, and he lost everything, and now here he is, tired and thirsty and alone in a foreign land, and suddenly he does it right, and it works. And that's a sign from God to Moses that he was named right, that he had picked the right path. God did deliver him on an ark. It wasn't the Nile God that delivered him. And God did deliver Moses, not just for himself, but for the life of the world, for others. He did have a calling to deliver people from injustice. So this begins... 40 years of healing and renewal for Moses in the wilderness. But there's a, there's a thing you've got to see. The healing occurs in the wound. The gifts come in the wound. Look, look at verse 21. And Moses was content to dwell with, the, with, with this family. And he gave Moses his daughter poor, and she gave birth to a son. And he called his, son, his name Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. That's odd. He was content, and then he names his first son, I'm always a stranger. But you know that, don't you? You know what it's like to get everything you want and to be really content, but still inside to be homeless. You know it's possible to have these two things in your life, right? Everything you've been aiming, you get it, but also to feel a restlessness, a homelessness. Now, that tension between being content but also being restless, that's the tension 
that produces the healing in Moses. You see, even though Moses is safe and settled, no longer on the run, a welcome guest, a worthy son-in-law, content in his new home with a wife and a son and good work, he still feels like a stranger, a stranger in a strange land. And Moses is ger, which is the word for sojourner, strange. Moses is ger everywhere he goes. He just carries it with him into any party. Any party he's at, everybody's having a good time. Everybody thinks he's having a good time, but inside he's, a, he's, he's isolated. And that is so painful. And so many of you know that. You know that you've been delivered from one place to another, but you don't fit in any place anymore. We go on these journeys in life and we can't go back home. And the place we land at, we can't really fit in there. And it's so painful. And whenever you get to that place where you become aware of your homelessness, it's devastating. But, and this is the catch, homelessness is a condition that God thrives in. Right? Jesus had no place to lay his head. Whenever we become deeply aware of being alone, of not really being at home in the world, whenever we feel the ache inside that this world, there is no place in this world that's home for me. Whenever we get there, we have a chance to experience something that God can do that is just so remarkable to realize we are strangers everywhere on this earth, that this earth does not own us. We can learn to look forward in faith to the day when the earth redeemed, renewed, and cleansed will be our true home. And, and it'll be will live here in what it says in Hebrews, in the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. You see, in this moment, here is Moses with the job and the family and the community that he's needed all along, and yet it's not enough. In this moment, look at Moses, and you see a model of what it means to be what Jesus prayed that, that Keith read to us in this world, but not of it. Look at Moses, content and yet a stranger. He was, in, he was in Egypt by adoption. He was in Midian by, by being a refugee in marriage, but he didn't belong to either. And that's what he named his son. Our challenge is to learn how to live faithfully in that space to live at one level within the good, normal, creational story of home and marriage and parenthood and employment, and at the same time to remain a stranger, participating all the while in another story, the story of God. And while we may be in a place or a set of circumstances like Moses that we would never have chosen for ourselves, that is the time and that is the place where we must live. Like Jeremiah 29 says, marry and have children and plant gardens and build houses, even though you don't belong here, even though this world is not your home. That's where we get to here at the end of Exodus chapter 2. Moses in the place where he can become a great man of God. 
But actually, it's not the end of the chapter, right? There's one more paragraph. A chapter that begins with the baby Moses crying ends with the people of Israel crying. Notice verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. For the first time, the children of Israel give voice to their suffering. They break their long silence. They cry out in agony and anguish. And notice, they don't cry out to God. We're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks. The trauma of slavery and genocide has led them to forget God, which is what trauma does. And we'll come back to that in a couple of weeks. They just cry out. But God doesn't care. And for the first time in the story, God comes roaring from backstage to front stage. Suddenly, God burst onto the scene. God is named five times in two verses. His response is emphatic. Four verbs, each one repeating God as the subject. God heard. God remembered, God saw. And don't you love the way the chapter ends? And God knew. The Israelites have forgotten God. They think their suffering is unnoticed, unheard, unknown. The Egyptians think they're getting away with it. Moses might think he can never help his people again after his first two failed attempts. But at the end of chapter 2, in contrast to the end of chapter 1, end of chapter 1, the God Pharaoh dealing out death, terrorizing. End of chapter 2, but God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. And, I, and I'll close with this. Wherever you are in your life right now, God is calling you to draw near to him. If you are not a Christian, the Lord is calling you to believe in him and to become a child of God. Pledge your allegiance to Jesus and watch what happens as he delivers you from slavery and oppression. And if you cry out, if you cry out, he will hear you. He will come to your aid. If you're at a crossroads and you're trying to decide which way are you going to go? If you're trying to decide, am I going to throw my lot all in with God? Then God is calling you and he's calling you to draw near to him. Trust him to provide for your needs as you love your neighbors. If you open your heart to him, he will come to you. He will pour out on you his amazing grace. Or perhaps you're especially aware of your own homelessness that you're a stranger everywhere. If you're in the wilderness, God is calling you, like Moses, to draw near to him, to enjoy your friendship with God and his fatherly care. Rest in the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit as he prepares you to live your life for the life of the world. Let's pray.